0: Good day, good afternoon, or good evening, as the case may be. Whoever you are, and wherever you are, you deserve a great deal of thanks for tuning in to the Nasty Pasty podcast on today, our 40th episode. After abandoning the anthropophagi of the Amazonas last week, I'm back with another duo of disgustingly delicious examples of violent horror films. You've trodden the path almost as much as I have, so you know this formula like the back of your hand – Due to my slight obsession with the concept of video nasties, I wanted to put myself in the seat of the director of public prosecutions and go through a selection of films from the 80s and compare them to the ones that got prosecuted, just for argument's sake. I mean, some of the nasties are so inoffensive that you wonder why they were considered obscene, especially when some of the films that I've covered are actually worse. But still, let's continue the analysis with today's episode, covering two shopping-based slashes, mixing all the usual bloodshed with the bargains of a bustling business. We can learn some invaluable shopaholic tips too, like how to chew gum for maximum value for money, using wedding dresses in medical applications, and how not to lose your head over the price of a bandsaw. Today's bargains are 1986's Chopping Mall, also known as Killbots, and 1989's Intruder, also known as Night Crew. Now there's nothing necessarily unique about these slashers that are set in shopping locations, so we'll skip any small talk about a subgenre and just go straight for the jugular with our first film in the set, Chopping Mall. plaza mall a thief is suddenly beset upon by a strange robot in the middle of his crime suddenly pursued and then tasered by the machine it's then revealed that it's a demonstration video of three new state-of-the-art robots called protectors which the mall's manager insists cannot harm anyone that night towards the end of their shifts susie and Alison talk about an after hours party that they're participating in with allison being particularly reluctant Meanwhile, a thunderstorm rages outside and strikes the shopping centre with lightning, causing the security officer's system to malfunction. While the security officer ogles at a pin-up girl, one of the robots boosts into life in aggressive mode and kills the guard by piercing his throat. Three furniture shop staff, Mike, Ferdy and Greg, all talk about getting the shop fixed so that they too can attend the party, whilst two other teenagers, Rick and Linda, drive to the centre for the same meet-up. Shortly afterwards, another staff member enters the security office and is killed with a small harpoon, just as the party starts in the furniture shop with Mike being joined by his girlfriend Leslie. All the couples have sex using each of the shop's beds, except for Ferdy and Alison, who watch a horror movie whilst next to each other. A janitor is electrocuted when one of the robots fails to recognise his badge, and then stalks Mike when he exits the shop to get cigarettes for Leslie. After asking him for his badge, the robot then attacks Mike and slashes his throat. An impatient Leslie goes out looking for him and finds his body, only to be attacked by one of the robots who fires a laser weapon at her, eventually obliterating her head as all the others watch helplessly through the window. Now becoming aware of the group, two of the robots break into the store and pursue them, Managing to barricade themselves into the offices, the group begin to exit via a ventilation system, only to be shocked when the robots cut through their barricade, separating the girls from the boys. The girls amble on through the boiling hot vents, while the boys sequester guns from a firearm shop and open fire on one of the robots which comes close, seemingly destroying it. Susie gets paranoid due to the heat and causes the girls to exit the vents, intent on finding Greg. As the girls prepare for an encounter by making makeshift Molotov cocktails, the robot that the guys destroyed comes back online. The girls are attacked then by another of the robots, with the cocktails doing little to dissuade them, as they shoot and kill Susie by igniting one of the canisters that she's holding, setting her ablaze. The boys reunite with Alison and Linda and try to lure the pursuing machines into a booby trapped elevator that they've prepared. It works, destroying one of the robots completely. Greg begins to lose his mind, however, over Susie's death, but calms down when Ferdy has another idea of how to destroy the other robots using the mainframe computer. During the journey to the escalators, Greg is killed when one of the robots grabs him and flings him from a third-floor balcony, allowing the others to escape properly. They hide in another shop, only for one of the robots to cut through the shutter. Setting up shop mannequins as fake targets, the robot is distracted upon encountering the group, allowing Rick and Ferdy to pelt it with gunfire. One of its laser shot ricochets and hits it in a sensor, causing it to rotate and fire in a berserk state. Linda is caught in the crossfire, enraging Rick to drive into it with a sweeper, electrocuting him to death, but also causing the robot to shut down permanently. Ferdy and Allison continue on to find the mainframe by splitting up, only for Alison to be ambushed when she's in a hardware shop. Ferdy comes to her rescue and damages the robot's sensor, which ruins its laser capacity. It then launches a fire extinguisher at him, knocking him to the floor, where his head strikes, seemingly killing him. Now alone, Allison flees from the robot into a pet shop, only to be covered in some tarantulas when it tracks her down and smashes the cages. She soon devises a plan to get rid of the robot for good, cracking open a huge ton of paint and oil cans and dousing another store in the fluid. She shouts at the robot to lure it towards her, and it follows the noise, becoming stuck in the puddle of paint. Allison exits the store, tossing a flare inside, which ignites the paint instantly, causing a massive explosion that destroys the robot and throws her to the ground. Awakening, she's soon delighted to see that Ferdy has survived his fall, and he embraces her and congratulates her for her stylish defeat of the robot. (gasps) (sighs) (sighs) I don't know why I watch these things. I'm scared so easily. I'm sorry, I should have told you about that. I've seen this one a few times. Could I get you some more wine? Ferdy, are you trying to get me drunk? No, no, I I just figured maybe you might be thirsty. <sighs> you know, part of the reason why Greg fixed me up here tonight was so I wouldn't squeal to my uncle. I never thought that, uh. What? <sighs> I never thought it would be so uh, you know, nice. It's been nice for me too, Ferdy. Oh god! Oh, God! You're the king! You're the king! <laughs> Chocolate for the furniture, king. You're having a nice time. Yeah. Well, look, it's getting kind of late. The ball's gonna seal up in about an hour. What do you say I take you home? That's real sweet, Ferdy. But if it's all right with you, you can stay a little while longer. <sighs> Nice shot. This hilarious and entertaining jaunt of killer robots going on the rampage started life when Julie Corman, wife of the infamous Roger, made a deal with Vestron Video in late 1985 to make a horror film set in a shopping mall. Jim Wynorski, whose only credit at this stage was the fantasy film The Lost Empire, offered to direct the new project as long as he could write the script. Despite flunking film school and working for a publishing house, Wynorski had become acquainted with Roger Coleman by happenstance while on a return flight to LA, and he started working with him as a screenplay writer. Trusting his abilities, Julie accepted his offer, and the writing commenced, with Wynorski drafting his friend Steve Mitchell to help him with the script. The original script entitled Robots was worked on by both Wynorski and Mitchell and it was based on the 1954 film Gog which was about two murderous robots called Gog and Magog who were being controlled by a foreign entity to disrupt a science programme. While the script was not complete a draft written in just 24 hours was enough to secure funding from Corman and Vestron who'd already forged the deal to have a film based in the mall. regardless. The final script took between four and five weeks to complete entirely, and included many in-jokes and outside references, such as the characters from Eating Raoul and The Presence of Dick Miller, or the shop Peckinpah's Sporting Goods being a specific reference to Sam Peckinpah. The budget for the film was set at $800,000, but Wynorski was not worried as it was a Corman production, so wastage and over-expenditure would not have been an issue. Roger Corman even met up with Wynorski for lunch before principal photography began with a yellow notepad of do's and don'ts in filmmaking, his vision of filmmaking, if you will, which Wynorski took to heart, and he still has to this day. The original shooting location was to be Beverly Central Shopping Centre, but when they required an expensive fee, it was changed to Sherman Oaks Galleria, the same shopping centre that featured in Commando the very same year with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I thought it looked familiar. The mall was allowed to be used during closing hours and the crew were free to film as long as they removed all traces of their presence before opening hours and they didn't damage anything. Whilst the mall's owner was incredibly supportive, the head of security was reportedly very caustic and accusatory towards the crew, assuming that they were vandalising the building. Apart from that, the 22-day shoot almost went without a hitch, with 20 days being spent filming at the shopping mall and two days at Corman Studios. The only slight hiccup was when director Wynorski injured himself. During the filming of Greg's death scene, director Wynorski volunteered to perform the stunt himself to try its safety. The stunt was performed seemingly successfully, though he actually broke a rib during the take. He, however, kept this fact hidden for the remainder of the production so as to not blight the stump work. The titular robots themselves were, of course, real constructions, five of which were built for use in the film, with three main ones and two for backups in case any of the others were damaged. They were constructed from conveyor belts and wheelchair parts, stuff like that, due to both the budget and to make them practical looking. They were fully controllable via remote control as well. The only visual effects that were added afterwards were their laser beam weapons, and they scrub up pretty well, I'd say. I mean, you can pretty much get a glimpse of what's in store for you within the first five minutes of Chopping Mall. That montage at the beginning really sets the tone. It's cheesy, it's funny, and it's oozing 80s all over your face. The music, the emphasis on McDonald's and Coca-Cola, the shell suits and the fashions, the hairstyles, etc., etc., I mean, not being born during the 80s myself, I love it when I get a shot of concentrated 80s in a film, just to get a slight hint of what that era was like in reality. While Chopping Mall isn't going to be winning points for its story or characters, both of which are relatively perfunctory and functional, it more than makes up for it in enthusiasm... The comedic and silly tone that the film starts with remains in effect until the very end, and despite the players in the film being rather one-dimensional, you still feel relentless charm towards them due to the film's vibe of fun. Other things endear you to the film as well, like arrays of references to other cult things, like having the Star Wars transitions to cut the scenes with the robots walking around, the footage of Attack of the Crab Creatures, and the mention of Klaatu Barada Nikto. Even the moments of humour are quite good, like the death of the janitor transitioning into Leslie complaining about smoking, or the quip, do you want a list, when asked what can possibly go wrong when splitting up. It's incredibly self-aware of the fact that it's a silly sci-fi horror, and it plays this element up so successfully, it's really hard not to like the film. The story is rather simple, essentially a reworking of Short Circuit, really, Instead of lightning striking a militarised robot weapon and turning it into a loving, sentient machine, we have protective security robots struck by lightning and becoming murderous killbots. It's silly, it's hammy, but boy, is it ever good. The script doesn't really give our characters much to do other than wander from location to location, being chased by our metal mutilators, and occasionally dying in graphic ways. But there's a sweetness to the characters, though, that comes through, despite the lack of characterization. For example, Alison and Ferdy are tremendously cute together, bonding over a showing of a 50s B-movie. Rick and Linda are a married couple, removing the usual scathing way that premarital sex is frowned upon in these films, and they too have rather good chemistry. Susie has the confidence to strip off after being told she smells like pepperoni, though she does turn into the group's mueller who screams and cries a lot in these sorts of films. Greg is kind of the supposed sensible one, while Mike is the jock character, and he's sleazily smiling all the time, chewing gum, and looking generally smug about how good he looks. Which he does, quite frankly. And he's paired up with the sex doll type Leslie, who equally flaunts her buxom looks. So, there are the usual archetypes, but they're not particularly dislikable as victims in these films usually are. They're actually rather endearing, despite their silliness, and the film has so much fun with this approach. It's almost childlike in its portrayal of the teens and the robots as like baddies versus the goodies, that it really endears you with its pure gusto in delivering exciting action around its otherwise stock characters. There's certainly not much real subtext in the film, though, other than the full-on commercial aspect of the opening montage, seemingly suggesting that we've become so capitalist in our society that even our own security is now behind a paywall, outsourcing our safety for the highest price in technology. But... As it stands, Dawn of the Dead has pretty much said all you need to know about shopping centres and their commercial evils, so let's not tart Shopping Mall with the same brush. Essentially, what you have is kind of what everyone wants from a horror film. There's a bit of nudity, there's some dumb victims, there's a charismatic or mysterious killer, or in this case killers, an interesting backdrop for the action, and some gory murders. Chopping Mall ticks all those boxes, and while it's nothing like the film's poster would suggest, i.e. bags of jibbed body parts, you do get some quite surprising demises in this. I mean, someone gets their throat stabbed, a harpoon to the back of the neck, a throat slashing, a head being obliterated with a laser, being thrown off a balcony, electrocutions, laser shootings. Quite commendable when I've just assumed that we were just going to get the bloodless shootings due to the robot theme, so this guy here is really pleased. While most of the female cast do get a bit frisky early on in the film with a bit of t and a, I was getting distracted by the guy that plays Ferdy, who was so damn good looking. And the ones that play Rick and Mike too. I hadn't really seen so much eye candy in one film. In fact, they did really choose a good-looking cast for this one, even in the female department, and it's way more noticeable than usual. It's not that often that you get a universally attractive cast, so again, this is a great reason to tune into this one, because there's something for everyone. Leading lady, Kelly Maroney, who played Alison, was brought onto the production for two reasons, mainly. The previously selected actress for the role was Dana Dana Kimmel, who played final girl Chris from Friday the 13th Part 3, but she was uncomfortable with the sexual themes in the film. Director Jim Wanorski then had to find an alternative, and he had a crush on Maroney from seeing her in various bits and bobs, so he decided to cast her as Kimmel's replacement. Maroney had ridden the exploitation train many a time, such as on the sci-fi zombie flick Night of the Comet, and after she did Chopping Mall, she went on to The Zero Boys by Nico Masterakis and Not of This Earth opposite Tracy Lord's. The gorgeous Tony O'Dell, who played Ferdy, had previously starred in The Karate Kid before landing the role on Chopping Mall. He reprised his Karate Kid role in the sequel, it was in the horror film Evils of the Night, and he's continued to work on American TV shows ever since. The equally handsome Russell Todd would be recognisable by most slasher fans as the irritating pervy Scott from Friday the 13th Part 2, but he's also had appearances in stuff like He Knows You're Alone and Where the Boys Are. The role of Linda was originally going to be played by Deborah Blee from Savage Streets, but she was replaced last minute by Carrie Emerson, who'd also been in Evils of the Night with her co-star Odell. Barbara Crampton played the role of Susie, and she's recognisable as quite the cult star, having appearances in Body Double, Reanimator, From Beyond, Puppet Master, Trancers 2, Castle Freak, etc., etc., She continues to have a large presence in cult horror as well, such as in the latest puppet master film The Littlest Reich, and she's frequently a seen face during expositions and horror festivals. Mike was portrayed by the hunky John Telesky, who'd infamously portrayed the title role in 1987's Deathstalker 2, but his acting roles became relatively scarce when he devoted his time to directing, with several small-scale films and TV episodes under his belt – Stuff like Ugly Betty, Boston Legal, and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Susie Slater, who played Leslie, had also been in Savage Streets, while Paul Bartel, who played one of the interested parties during the robot demonstration, had been in a bunch of cult films like Escape from L.A., Piranha, Gremlins 2, and Eating Raoul. His accomplice was played by Mary Warrenoff, who herself had been in lots of cult stuff, like Silent Night Bloody Night, Death Race 2000, Night of the Comet... Dick Tracy, Looney Tunes Back in Action, and The Devil's Rejects. She was also an eating role with her co-star Bartell, and interestingly, they reprise their characters from that movie too. So too does the janitor, played by Dick Miller, who reprises the role from The Twilight Zone movie, The Howling, and Bucket of Blood. Miller is rather famous for his wide range of character appearances, some of which include The Trip... Death Race 2000, Piranha, The Aftermath, Gremlins 1 and 2, The Terminator, Night of the Creeps, Inner Space, The Burbs, Evil Tunes, Amityville, It's About Time, Small Soldiers, Looney Tunes Back in Action, and the 2009 horror comedy The Hole. The second security guard to be killed was played by Garrett Graham, who'd been in Terror Vision, and he'd go on to have minor appearances in Police Academy 6 and Child's Play 2. Angela Ames has a brief role as one of the showgirls in the demonstration at the beginning. She had some minor roles in 1978's Adult Fairy Tales and 1984's Bachelor Party. Whilst Rodney Eastman, who'd star in Nightmare on Elm Street Parts 3 and 4, as well as the remake of I Spit on Your Grave, he debuted in this film as a shoplifter in the opening montage. Additionally, director Jim Wachnowski himself portrayed the electronic voices of the Killbots. Director Jim Wynorski had made his career on films just like Shopping Mall, really. While it was his second feature after his debut 1984's The Lost Empire, his films do have a very distinctive tone and execution, frequently featuring female nudity, cheesy dialogue and an emphasis on comic violence. Some of his other works include Deathstalker 2, 1988's Not of This Earth, Sorority House Massacre 2, Ghoulies 4, the 1995 remake of The Wasp Woman, etc. etc. At the start of the 2000s, he started working almost exclusively on nudie horror comedy mashups with some truly sleazy and silly titles, like The Bear Wench Project, which strangely had another five instalments. Alabama Jones and the Busty Crusade, The Witches of Brestwick, The Brestford Wives, House on Hooter Hill, The Da Vinci Co-Ed, The Devil Wears Nada, The Hills Have Thighs, Busty Co-Eds vs. Lusty Cheerleaders. I mean, you get the picture. But he's also done a handful of sci-fi channel style films as well, like 2011's Camel Spiders and 2012's Piranaconda. Wynorski also wrote the film along with co-writer Steve Mitchell, who worked both in children's TV and the documentaries that came much later about Chopping Mall. It was really a Roger Corman production, so it's not surprising that his wife Julie Corman was one of the producers. She'd also worked on The Nest in 1988 and 1990's Braindead, before going into aforementioned sci-fi channel movies like Dino Shark and Sharktopus Ginny Nugent was also a co-producer on the film, and though she had a small filmography of credits, there are some really memorable bits of work on it, like 1988's Bad Dreams, the original Tremors film, The Craft, and the comedy film Poorly. Finally, there was Charles Scorus III, who went on to work prominently on Tales of the Crypt and Desperate Housewives. The composer, who came up with that very iconic opening theme tune, was Chuck Sereno, who pretty much worked almost always with Jim Wynorski's productions. The cinematography was done by award-winning Tom Richmond, who won the Cinematography Award at the Sundance Film Festival for his work on 2006's Right at Your Door. Some of his other works include Night of the Comet, Troll, Hard Rock Zombies, Nightmare on the 13th Floor, and Waking the Dead. Leslie Rosenthal was the editor, who worked on the Video Nasty Pranks as a camera assistant, and went on to Return of the Swamp Thing and 1993's Ticks. The film's special effects were done by quite a large team, including Anthony Show, who'd worked on Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Android, The Mutilator, and Savage Dawn. Another was veteran effects guy Roger George, who has a vast credits list, including The Trip, The Girl Who Knew Too Much, Humanoids from the Deep, The Howling, Bloody Birthday, The Terminator, Ghoulies, Bad Dreams, etc. etc. He even worked on three of the Section 3 video nasties, Parasite, Superstition, and Mausoleum. Robert Short, who specifically created the Killbots, had worked previously on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T., Piranha, and 1980s Virus. The visual effects were done by Steve Berg, who started off in exploitation films like Troll and Night of the Creeps, but has since gone on to work in the art department of various blockbusters, like The Matrix, Total Recall, Dances with the Wolves... Uh, Terminator 2, Alien 3, Honey I Blew Up the Kid, X-Men, Evolution, Alien vs Predator, Interstellar, The Martian and most recently Alien Covenant. Finally, there was January Nordman, who'd already worked on the graphics of films like Android and Dune. After Chopping Mall, she worked as an animator and digital compositor on various flicks, like Willow, The Fly 2, Tix, Last Action Hero, Stargate, James and the Giant Peach, Gone in 60 Seconds, Scooby-Doo, Shark Tale, The Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift, and the remake of The Hills Have Eyes 2. The film also had three assistant directors, one of which was the writer Stephen Mitchell. The other ones were Terence J. Edwards, who'd worked on Witchboard and Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, whilst the other one was Christine Peterson, who'd worked on Exterminator 2, The Ladies' Club, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, and the first Tremors film. But she even directed a few films herself, such as Critters 3 and Kickboxer 5. The film was released theatrically in 1986 as Killbots in the US, but it received little to no fanfare or substantial returns. Retitling the film Chopping Mall and re-releasing it improved the reaction to the film much better. But arguably, however, it was the VHS release later later that same year which helped people really warm to the film, as it made much more money that way, and it has now become something of a cult classic. In the UK, the VHS was released in 1987, obviously way too late to the party to be seized as a video nasty. And rarely, it received an uncut release too at Certificate 18. This has, though, been the only legitimate release in the country, as it hasn't really been submitted for a while. There are some cheap, bare-bones, unofficial DVD releases floating around, though, from either the Dead of Night series or the Beyond Terror label, which actually just has the Dead of Night version disc in anyway. But it's also available for free for anyone who has Amazon Prime on Amazon Prime Video. And it is the full uncut version as well. So that was Chopping Mall, one of my recently discovered favourites. I think it was only last year when on a night in with friends, alcohol and a takeaway, we were going through Amazon Prime Video and just looking for something really silly to watch. Now I spotted this and I'd heard good things about it, but I hadn't seen it. I kind of blagged that I did, though, and I played it up quite a bit, and they agreed to watch it, which is a rarity, really, because every other time I put something on, it doesn't really go down that well, like Rats, Night of Terror, or Gutterballs. But to my surprise and delight, it turned out that Chopping Mall was a hit with everyone. We all loved it, and I'm now a lifelong fan of this film. How does everyone else feel about it? Or if you haven't seen it, when are you going to watch it? While you ponder that thought, let's get on to our next film this week... Scott Spiegel's Intruder. <laughs> Walnut Lake Market, cashiers Jennifer and Linda chat at the tills before Jennifer leaves to round up the carts outside as it's getting late. As she puts them together, a bearded guy in a leather jacket watches her before disappearing suddenly. As her shift comes to a close, the guy, her ex-boyfriend called Craig, confronts her at the till and causes a scene which becomes violent, causing injuries to both Jennifer and the butcher Randy. Whilst Jennifer phones the police, the remaining staff look for Craig in the store and turn up nothing. But suddenly, Jennifer is attacked by Craig again, only for the owners, Billy and Danny, to catch him and forcibly eject him from the property. The police advise that they'll send a squad car out, just as Bill makes the announcement that he and Danny are selling the business, meaning that the night crew must stay on shift to mark down all the prices overnight, which was met with expected negativity. When Craig begins to phone the supermarket, Jennifer explains that he has stalked her for the last year ever since they broke up, since he went to prison for a manslaughter charge. The crew then continue to mark down the prices, consisting of Joe, Randy, Dave, Bob, Tim, Linda and Jennifer working intermittently. Linda's shift soon finishes, however, and after collecting some shopping for herself, she goes to the car and prepares to leave, just as a figure grabs her and stabs her to death. Bill notices that someone is sneaking around the parking lot, only to notice Craig peering in at Jennifer as she's in the restroom. They fight, and Bill is knocked unconscious with a hammer. Shortly afterwards, Danny is attacked and strangled by the assailant. His attempts to use the intercom are thwarted when the killer murders him by shoving his face onto a bill spike. Jennifer learns from Linda's boyfriend that she has not arrived home, causing her to panic, but she stops when Dave kisses her. Tim perves on the couple while the killer stalks Joe in the back, plunging a knife into the back of his head, killing him. Tim hears further noises while he's working, and whilst investigating a door opening, he's attacked by the killer, who shoves a large kitchen knife through his stomach, piercing the beer cans behind him and sending blood spraying everywhere. While Bob sends supplies downstairs, he notices a figure looking at him from behind the lift. Investigating, he finds Tim's body still standing, and not realising that he's dead, is caught unawares by the killer and has his head crushed using the hydraulic lift. Randy goes back to labelling the cuts of meat after unsuccessfully trying to find Danny and Bill, and he comes across a human hand packaged like a piece of meat. Just as he sees this, the killer grabs him and forces him head first onto a meat hook. Dave cuts himself while stocking the shelves and goes to the toilets to clean up, only to find severed feet inside, which he assumes to be a joke. After finding no one around, he investigates the attic and finds a bunch of masks, only to then be shocked by a still-alive Danny. Fleeing the scene, Dave notices that Craig has gained access to the store and is about to confront Jennifer. Before Dave can warn her, he's ambushed by the killer who uses a bandsaw to sever his head at the jawline. Jennifer becomes aware of the sudden quiet around the place and goes looking for people to encounter Randy's corpse in the meat locker. Fleeing from a figure that pursues her, she ends up falling down a chute and into the cellar where she finds the dead bodies of Joe, Bob and Tim. Making her way back to the main level, she encounters Dave's severed head near a stack of beer just before she hears someone try to get into the shop. Heading to the front doors, she's unable to get a customer's attention and furthermore finds Craig standing right behind her. She knocks him out with a meat hook only to hear footsteps in the store. It's Bill, who's now awake. He goes to phone the police just as Jennifer notices that Bill has blood on his hands. Realising that he is the killer, Jennifer runs but is caught by Bill who explains that he killed Danny for making him sell the store while he simply got carried away and murdered the others out of sheer enjoyment. Jennifer knocks him away and hides between the aisles only to be rumbled when her nosebleed gives her away. A long chase ensues until a delivery man rings the doorbell. She tries to get help from him, only for Bill to appear behind him and stab him to death, before tormenting her with Danny's severed head. As she runs away, she's suddenly grabbed by Craig, who has woken up, and he explains that he saw Linda get killed by Bill and has been trying to get Jennifer's attention ever since. Bill pursues them and knocks Craig out again, leaving Jen to run for the exit in the restroom where Craig had indicated an open window. Getting outside, she tries to drive off in a car, but gets distracted by Linda's corpse and is grabbed by Bill, only for her to plunge a knife into his chest, downing him. She uses the payphone nearby to phone for help, as Bill gets up and attacks her again, destroying the phone box, only to be rescued when Craig knocks him to the floor by hacking him with a meat cleaver. When the police arrive, they cuff both Craig and Jennifer due to their bloodstained appearance, while Bill frames them with his dying breath. The pair protest their innocence, but the cops refuse to listen after heading inside and finding all of the other bodies. As Bill opens his eyes, Jennifer screams as the film ends. help me somebody help me your name Fucking Parker walking down nine miles, swinging a goddamn head by the hair in one hand and his sandwich in the other. You're playing hard to get. Red off. Intruder was a real latecomer to the slasher genre, releasing in 1989 when the genre had all but dried up. I mean, in that year, there was Halloween 5, A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, and Friday the 13th Part 8, and they'd all been released to a drastically muted response compared to their previous instalments, which resulted in the sale of both Friday the 13th and Halloween franchises to other companies. Arguably, the franchises did go downhill after these last fading grabs at success, and the slasher film, too, would be condemned to relative failure until the release of Wes Craven's Scream in 1996. Not necessarily planning to be a slasher film, Intruder came about when Scott Spiegel and his friends Sam and Ted Raimi began producing small horror shorts on Super 8 film. Not unlike that of the infamous Evil Dead, really, which was based on a Super 8 short entitled Within the Woods that eventually grew into a script and then the later film. Intruder was more of the same thing, being based on a short entitled Night Crew, where a worker at a shop is killed by a Michael Myers-esque murderer and has his head sawn in half. The original film was lost, however, as the trio grew up, and it wasn't brought up again until 1988, when producer Lawrence Bender asked the Rameys and Spiegel about a horror film that would only cost $60,000 to make. They agreed, although the total cost would rise to more than double at $130,000 throughout the production. They decided to revive their old idea of Night Crew and flesh it out into a more content-rich plot with more opportunities for mayhem. While they conceived of the story to be just like a slasher film, they knew that the genre had been unsuccessful and decided to just tackle it with quality in mind, giving the best gore sequences that they could at the time. With film stock consisting entirely of short ends and a small shooting schedule of just two weeks, the crew set to find a location for their film to be shot at. They eventually found the Ranch Market Grocery Store in Bell, California, which was a disused empty lot, really with none of the products that would be needed to portray a proper supermarket. They took the place anyway, enlisting the help of a wholesaler who specialised in defective produce to fill up the store with out-of-date, rotten or otherwise damaged goods. The shoot went pretty much without incident, though the filming of the infamous bandsaw to the face did cause some of the script team to cry due to the effects' realism. One thing that you do notice about the film is some of the experimental crazy camera work. Again, not unlike Raimi's work on the Evil Dead, but specifically a lot of inanimate objects of a point of view shot, such as a doorknob or a telephone. I mean, Spiegel at one point wanted a corpse's point of view as well, but the mask application wouldn't fit the camera properly, so that idea was abandoned. And he even wanted the camera to travel down Jennifer's mouth in the climax, where she screams, and for the camera to see her heart stop from fear. But this was abandoned, presumably because it would have been very difficult to accomplish. Something else that was abandoned was Randy's original death, where he was meant to be gutted using a meat hook. However, Ted Raimi made a joke about Sam being hung like a piece of meat, and as the trio were all friends, the gag kind of stuck, so it was changed to the death sequence that's featured in the final movie. The plot is fairly run-of-the-mill for a slasher picture, having a mix of unpleasant and normal kids being slaughtered in gruesome ways by a mysterious killer who then has a showdown with the final girl. I mean, Intruder is as typical as a slasher gets, with only a couple of standout exceptions – Our characters are a truly mixed bag of fodder who lies somewhat outside of your usual stock-type characters. I mean, Jennifer's a relatively normal and resourceful girl who's simply doing her job and having fun while she's at it, engaging in banter with her friend Linda and eyeing up the attentions of Dave. She has frequent nosebleeds too, which in and of itself is nothing remarkable, but it does lead to a tense moment later when she's being pursued by the killer. Chekhov's nosebleed, in a sense. Linda also seems rather nice too, but she's not in the film long enough to really appreciate, while Dave also seems like a decent sort of chap who's interested in Jennifer, but not in a jerkish, predatory sense where he forces himself on her. The same can't be said for Craig, who's not only obsessive and forceful, but generally just an unpleasant person with no redeeming qualities. Even the finale where he helps Jennifer, it doesn't blind me to his twatish behaviour from earlier, and it certainly doesn't vindicate him in my eyes. What makes him more dislikable, despite the fact that it's not really his fault, is the role he plays as the biggest red herring ever employed. Of course he isn't going to be the killer, it's just too obvious. In fact, a slight weakness of the film is that it only leaves Jennifer, Bill and Craig alive before the reveal. And since we know it's not Jennifer or Craig, by mere process of elimination the killer had to be Bill. Not that it was a mystery anyway, seeing as almost every poster and VHS or DVD artwork basically reveals it to be him anyway. Some of the other characters are just plain bizarre. For example, Joe, who chops meat in the back room. I mean, he speaks funny, he rides a conveyor belt, and he's always listening to music with headphones on. While his lookalike, Randy, both of them played by the Ramey brothers, is relatively normal. I mean, that dynamic of the two, you know, similarly looking brothers is just incredibly weird. And for the fact, they look both similar. I actually got confused at one point when Joe is shocked to hear about Craig's attack on the staff. I was thinking, but Craig just hit you moments ago, how did you forget? Until I realised that that was actually Randy. Bub too is a strange one, speaking with an almost purposeful slowness and an overly thoughtful manner. Tim is probably the closest thing we'll get to a pervert, as he peeps on Dave and Jen getting it on, and he has a love for cheap beer as well, which humorously signals his demise. Again, Danny seems like a nice chap, and just as businesslike as you can imagine with a store that's leeching money, which leads on to the last character, Bill. I mean, he's pretty damn brutal as killers go, but he's also one of the most deranged that I've ever seen. It's quite surprising and noteworthy that he actually has a more believable motive for his killings. I mean, he obviously wanted to kill Danny for pressuring him into selling the shop, but then he admits that he got carried away with killing everyone, presumably because he found that he enjoyed it. He does then genuinely descend into a proper loony, like eating a sandwich and brandishing a severed head in the other hand, spouting a line from Raising Arizona while he's at it. He pretends to be Danny's corpse, he giggles uncontrollably, and he even beats Craig unconscious with the said severed head. Truly, truly memorable. What's also memorable, and pretty much the real reason that everyone really loves this movie, is the string of really, really bloody killings in the film. Before we go on to them, though, the pacing of the movie just needs to be talked about, as I think it's quite purposeful. Deciding to do the slasher template to its maximum efficiency, the film starts with almost an hour of character talking and interaction before the first chunk of violence happens. When it kicks in, though, it doesn't stop until everyone's dead, and I mean that sincerely. The murders just begin, and they don't hold back until there's only Jennifer left, which is actually not as close to the end of the film as you'd expect, and then it becomes a kind of proper cat-and-mouse style film, with Bill pursuing his final victim for the rest of the runtime. This does have the slight effect of the film's signature effects burning out a little prematurely, leaving us with just not-as-eventful chase sequences for the remainder, which, it was a little bit tedious for me. Also, the ending is a little bit downbeat, and it's one of the few slashes to end actually quite more realistically than most. Instead of Bill being blamed appropriately, the cops assume rather correctly that it would be the remaining people, Jennifer and Craig, who have murdered everyone, as it's only their word against no-one else's. And it's quite similar to the dorm that dripped blood, or pranks, as it was known here in the UK. It's certainly not the end in the expect, where the killer kind of gets away with it. These things certainly don't spoil the film, though. Simply just for the sheer relentless nature of the slasher kills in the middle, and you do get some truly amazing effects, like a bill spike going in someone's eye. A butcher's knife in the head, a knife to the gut with proper arterial spray. A head being crushed like a melon in a hydraulic lift. A meat hook being jammed into a head, presumably in homage to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And in the film's most infamous moment, a head is bisected at the jawline using a bandsaw. It's a real testament to the skill of these special effects, guys, as these sorts of special effects never seem to age the same way that CGI does. It only makes them more charming and thrilling to watch. Final Girl Jennifer was played by Elizabeth Cox, who previously appeared in Night of the Creeps, and 1986's The Wraith. Her best friend Linda was played by Renee Estevez, the younger sister of the Estevez brothers, Emilio, Ramon and Carlos, a.k.a. Charlie Sheen. She's had a few appearances here and there, like in Lethal Weapon, Heathers and Scar City. Dan Hicks plays the killer Bill, recognisable from his role as the Hick Jake in Sam Raimi's Evil Dead 2. Hicks also appeared in Maniac Cop, Darkman, Wishmaster, Spider-Man 2, and Oz the Great and Powerful, so he was clearly a friend of the Raimi's. Speaking of which, both Sam and Ted Raimi appear in this movie too, as Randy and Joe respectively. And they're rather famous in Horrorland. I mean, Sam was mainly a director and producer of stuff like the iconic Evil Dead trilogy, the Spider-Man series in the early 2000s, A Simple Plan, Drag Me to Hell, Darkman, etc., etc., his brother Ted Ramey frequently indulges in his brother's films, and others, as quite a recognisable character actor, appearing in the Evil Dead trilogy, Blood Rage, Shocker, Candyman, Twin Peaks, Maniac Cop 3, Wishmaster, the three Spider-Man films, Drag Me to Hell, Oz the Great and Powerful, Attack of the 50-Foot Cheerleader, and also the recent series, Ash vs. the Evil Dead. Bursteers, who played Bub, would reappear in both Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, before making a transition to directing, where he made the acclaimed Igby Goes Down in 2002, and Pride and Prejudice and Zombies in 2016. Craig Stark, who played Tim, later appeared in the remake of 2001 Maniacs, as well as Django Unchained and The Hateful Eight, with an upcoming appearance in the Still In production Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. While only appearing in a cameo at the end as one of the police officers, Bruce Campbell also appears in this film, again, a quite an iconic character who played the role of Ash in the Evil Dead movies, and the subsequent franchise. Producer Lawrence Bender also cameos as the other cop in the film, while Alvie Moore from Byron Quisenberry's Scream plays the role of another police officer earlier in the film. And finally, Emile Sitka, famous for his work with the Three Stooges, plays the role of old Mr Abernathy, the old guy in the opening. And he even repeats his famous line, you two lovebirds hold hands. Director Scott Spiegel didn't really continue his directing career in a full capacity. And he only has a few credits to his name, like From Dusk Till Dawn 2 or Hostel Part 3. Like Ted Raimi, he had a lot of cameo appearances in Sam Raimi's films, and he worked as a writer and producer on stuff like the Evil Dead movies and then later the Hostel films. Producer Lawrence Bender went on to quite a lot of prolific films like Reservoir Dogs, Killing Zoe, The Three From Dust Till Dawn movies, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2, Inglorious Bastards, The Forest, Hacksaw Ridge, and the announced Kill Bill Volume 3. The infamous Charles Band, too, was a producer on the film, whom we've mentioned before on many episodes. Basil Polidoris was the composer on the film, who was responsible for the soundtrack of the Robocop films, but he also did Conan the Barbarian, Free Willy 1 and 2, Under Siege 2, Starship Troopers, and Mickey Blue Eyes. The cinematography was done by a Spanish chap called Fernando Arduelles, who went on to work on Mind Ripper, and then found success on TV shows like Prison Break and Grimm. The editing was done by King Wilder, who also worked on Creepazoids and Cannibal Women in the Avocado Jungle of Death. The film's very accomplished special effects were done by several people, including Howard Berger, who was an Academy Award winner for his work on Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And he's got such a large body of work that I'll only be able to run off some of the names. But here goes, Day of the Dead, Night of the Creeps, Evil Dead 2, The Hidden... Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4 and 5, House 3, The Horror Show, Halloween 5, Reanimator 2, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, Misery, The People Under the Stairs, Army of Darkness, Maniac Cop 3, Ticks, Pulp Fiction, New Nightmare, From Dusk Till Dawn, Wes Craven's Scream 1 and 2, Wishmaster, John Carpenter's Vampires, The Faculty, and it just goes on and on and on. There's literally too many well-known ones to list them all. The other ones were Robert Kurtzman and Greg Nicotero, who worked on almost all of Sam Raimi's films, as well as worked with Berger on most of his as well. But this is most likely due to the fact that the threesome opened their own company together called KNB Effects Group in 1988, and they continued to work as a collective on all of their subsequent work. Outside of this trio, there was also Sean Rogers, who debuted his work on this film, before going on to House 3, the horror show, A Child's Play 2, Puppet Master 2, Buried Alive, and Boogeyman 3. Finally, there was the assistant director, Eddie Zeeve, who'd worked in that capacity on various projects like Sister Act 2, Leprechaun 2, and Amityville Dollhouse, before going on to work in American TV movies and shows. The film was originally entitled Night Crew, The Final Checkout, but Charles Band sold his company shortly after the film was completed, leaving the film in a legal limbo as far as distribution went. Eventually, the film was picked up by Paramount and underwent a retitle to sell the film as a more generic slasher picture. While they did toy with the title Nerve Endings, they eventually settled on Intruder, and it was rather late to the party, not even gaining a theatrical release in most of the major territories. Instead, it became more of a straight-to-video hit in the US, in which Paramount heavily promoted the appearances of Sam and Ted Raimi and Bruce Campbell, despite their very small roles. This also was an R-rated version, which had almost five minutes of footage removed from it. The uncut version was submitted to the BBFC in the UK in 1989 by Polygram, where it received an 18 certificate after almost two minutes of cuts, seemingly to each of the gory death sequences. Obviously, the Nasties panic had long since died a quiet death, so Intruder arrived on the scene way too late for any sort of controversy. But this cut version remained in circulation for many years, until the film finally saw an uncut version passed in 2003. There doesn't seem to be an actual release, though, so I'm not sure whether a distributor sort of passed it and then just forgot about it, because I really don't remember this being on DVD at all that early. Anyway, later we got a restored version, again uncut, from 88 Films, with all of the sequences of gore intact, and the film is now available in all of its splattery glory with a bunch of juicy extras. So, there you have it folks, that was Intruder and the last of our films this week. Has anyone seen these films before? Are you going to if you haven't, and what did you think of them? It's probably been the most fun I've had with a pair of films for a while, so I'd love to hear everyone else's thoughts. I mean, I know my friend Mr. Gore Blimey is a fan of Chopping Mall, as well as Russell Todd. I'm with you there, Gore. Some of my other followers, like Slasher Trash and Bevan Shortridge, also seem to dig these films, and it does seem that they're cult favourites, and for bloody good reason too. Next week, we're back in giallo territory with two giallo films of no particular significance, so therefore next week it will be typical giallo films, with The Case of the Bloody Iris and Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye. Until then, though, maybe save the pennies and avoid murderous malls and slicey-dicey shops. Basically, take care, everyone. I'll be back in your ears in just seven days' time. Actually, that sounds a bit gross. Never mind. Bye for now.